this month on the podcast. Me and Kate talk about automation. We also talk about apprenticeships. Then Joe and I sit down and discuss the magazine. And also Rachel Orchard drops by to talk about coaching and a whole lot more. Hi, everybody. I'm John Kennard, editor of TJ, and this is the TJ Podcast, September 2019. As is customary, we start with the news. I'll hand you over to your dashing podcast host. As always, we start uh, the podcast off this month with the news section, and that means a big warm welcome to Kate Graham. How's it going? I'm really well, thanks. How are you? I'm okay. Uh, yes, we. Uh, it feels like this is the new chapter. It's not just about school terms, but it does feel like... Uh, this is the start of the busy period of, of uh, L&D, as many industries uh, and many other industries, I'm sure. Uh, you went to Learning Live recently. How was that? Uh, I, it's funny that you say about the start of term. I've never shaken off that September, you know, new pencil case kind of vibe. And Learning Live kind of kicks that off for me straight away in September every year. It's early in the month. Um, and it was a really good couple of days. And actually, as somebody who's been going to that event for a long time, a number of years now, I really felt like the Learning Performance Institute have taken it to the next level. Um, there was uh, more sponsors and, and suppliers there. It was a bigger venue. It, it just really felt 600, I think, um, heads of learning. So it just really felt like it had it had kicked on um, and, you know, a couple of interesting sort of announcements. So uh, they do a they do a poll or a sort of survey with the attendees um, and it's their top five challenges um, and learning culture, establishing a learning culture has actually come out on top of that. And um, that's quite interesting. It knocks the perennial now digital transformation off the, off the top spot, which is interesting. Yes. And the... I don't know, the implications of that are quite numerous, really. I think it's I think it's important to think about what a culture of learning looks like, but also where does that fit in? You can't just have that in isolation of your bigger, wider organisational culture and values. So how do you make that fit in? Um, and I mean, Nigel Payne's written a book recently that was published earlier this year it's absolutely excellent on learning culture so I'd point people at that if that is something that the uh, listeners are interested in um, but also they announced that they are launching a digital academy uh, for learning and development professionals so lots of bite-sized resources lots of curated content lots of new content all aimed at closing some of the gaps that have been identified on their capability and um, skills map so things like analytics, where L&D professionals have sort of self-identified that there's room for improvement or room for growth in the skills in that area, they're going to be looking at where those biggest skills gaps are and trying to plug some of those gaps with some new uh, content. So I think that sounds very exciting as well. Yeah, for sure. Um, the, 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 learning, the Digital Learning Academy sounds great. Also, yeah, interesting that digital transformation has been knocked off the top spot. That's been... Uh, slightly facile to call it a buzzword, even though it is partly. Um, mm. It is also very important. But um, I mean, learning culture is a part of digital transformation, or vice versa, I guess. Um, but it's good to see that uh, there's there's more of a focus on the L and D aspect of it rather than kind of an OD focus, of, uh, as there has been in the previous two or three years. Definitely. How's uh, how's Fosway life as well? What interesting stuff's happening there? Oh, you you know, talk about this being a busy time of year. This is uh, this is kind of 
silly season for us really um it's more on the hr practice side of things so we are just about to launch our first foray into talent acquisition so um a first look at the market in terms of a nine grid um will be live at the start of october um we also have the our traditional uh, launch for cloud hcm and talent management nine grids is towards the end of october um and then we also have the results of the annual hr realities research and we'll be kicking off the process around the digital learning nine grids and the digital learning realities uh, research as well so it's um, and it's crazy busy with user conferences and things like that as well so there's a lot happening right the way across the board busy busy there is we've got uh, and, and events wise we've got learning we've got world of learning coming up in about a month we've got ELN connect uh, there's a few events stateside um, I won't be getting to those but they uh, they are sort of growing in, in visibility and popularity over here I think yeah, so Learning 2019, so um, Elliot Macy's event, uh, which is now owned by Closer Still, that owns Learning Technologies, uh, is in October. There's also um, COPD's annual uh, event in November. Um, and as I say, a whole gamut of uh, kind of software providers are running user conferences, etc. some of which are, are huge now. So, yes, it is it's pretty full on from, like I say, the 1st of September onwards, really. A couple of news stories. Should we start with the good or the bad or the negative or the positive? What do you want to do? Well, I think start with the bad and end with the good. Okay, cool. Uh, well, it's not really bad, but it's uh, uh, interesting. Okay, so a story from that I featured in Newsflash last week uh, from consultancy.uk. The number of organisations scaling automation doubles in 2019. But just to get into the detail of that, that is from 4% of companies to 8% of companies. So there's still, uh, if you do work in AI and automation, there's still quite a long way to go. But the number of businesses with automation able to handle a growing amount of work in a capable, cost-effective manner has doubled in 2019. A new study has found that 8% of organizations around the world have already delivered over 50 automations in the last year. Uh, the early adopters of these innovations are already beginning to witness the benefits of the technology, while those who lag behind are realising that now is the time to avoid being left behind. Uh, I think we understand where their angle is coming from. Um, yeah, I mean, the, I think I published a lot around this and about the importance of, say, soft skills off the back of what might happen to certain large swathes of industry. And I do agree with that, but I think there's also uh, we've got a we've got a chart here saying the top three expected benefits from intelligent automation adoption: number one, increased productivity; uh, number two, cost reduction; number three, improved accuracy. I think there's some euphemistic work here around the fact that headcounts are going to definitely go down in certain areas. Kate, what do you think about all this? I think that there is an inevitability about people's fear of this and actually i saw an interesting exchange on twitter the other day of somebody talking about coaching bots um it was andy lancaster from copd and you know there were a few responses like god save us all god help us all you know they can't possibly be as good as a as a person and you know there are lots of arguments that don't stack up with that because actually a bot is there 24 hours 
um, a day, they will always be able to direct you to some kind of answer or, you know, some kind of thought provoking piece of information or reflection. And, uh, you know, looking at, I mean, our research is showing, Fosway's research is showing, you know, kind of 70% of organisations think things like chatbots are going to be truly significant in their organisation in the next few years. And, you know, being able to automate some of the, frankly, deadly dull stuff that we do and increase our productivity as that chart showing. I don't think that's anything to be scared about personally. I think we should be running towards it with open arms. But then I don't work on a production line. So I suppose the the flip side and the kind of, you know, the negative aspect that you were talking about is that there are going to be job losses. But how do we, you know, reskill retrain redirect people's talent you know in into into new areas because there will all be always be something new you know 500 years ago somebody invented the printing press and that was you know the end of days as far as people are concerned and you know it wasn't the case was it so <laughs> i just i think there's a lot of hand wringing and hysteria sometimes around this stuff but it's going to happen so we might as well find a way to embrace it yeah that's a fair point it is going to happen and so we need to it is it is about working with rather than sort of pushing against but i just think that i would like to see um some more honest discourse around job losses uh i think um because that is also going to happen and yeah there, there will be new jobs that spring up and people will be reskilled and things and absolutely we should be automating the dull awful stuff that people have to put up with. Uh, I've just commissioned a piece about uh, automation and project management and how that's going to change the lives of project managers. And I think for definitely for the positive. But it is interesting. And I mean, f- from four to eight percent means it is still very early days. So uh, yeah, they're not taking over yet. And that's again, I think there is a bit of hysteria around it all because it all, you know, it's all going to take time. And I mean, you know, I ended up having an argument with Alexa about something the other day because it was almost like she was willfully misunderstanding what I was asking her to do. Um, And you realise, like, yeah, we are, you know, we're quite far away from this stuff being being perfected yet. True, absolutely. The next story from a little bespoke uh, mum and pop organisation called Sky News. Parents (laughs) prefer kids to get an apprenticeship rather than university degree. Now, this sounds pretty cool. Uh, stand first. Parents say apprentices have better job prospects than graduates, but also show a lack of faith in vocational qualifications. Interesting. Uh, so as a survey commissioned by the Chartered Management Institute, that found that 51% parents would encourage their child to apply for an apprenticeship instead of, instead of university. And 59% of parents thought an apprenticeship provided better job prospects than a university degree. However, this is a very strange poll, uh, but less than half of those polled said that vocational qualifications were better than academic qualifications. Interesting. And then it goes on to talk about T-levels, which we can come on to in a minute. But uh, what do you think What do you think so far about uh, this story, Kate? I mean, in some ways, it's not surprising, given the cost nowadays of, of university. I think that there's an element of uh, things going full circle, I think. You know, certainly when, you know, I'm so old now, but certainly when I was at that age, you know, late teens, choosing what to do for university, etc. I don't remember anyone talking about apprenticeships. I mean, I, I uh, live in an area where there's a lot of um, aerospace stuff. So, you know, quite a lot of the, the lads went off to do 
those sorts of things. But other than that, I mean, it was just, I don't even remember it being an option that was, that was talked about. It was college or, or A-levels at school. Um, and, and, and that was it. So I, I do think there's been a, a lot of work to bring them back into vogue. Interestingly, I, know, I see that the picture that accompanies the article is somebody in a car on what looks like a production line. <laughs> so given, given what we, yeah, uh, yeah, exactly. White person as well, obviously. Um, and, uh, you know, given what we were just talking about in terms of automation, um, <laughs> what's the value of that apprenticeship going to be, um, you know, in the long term? So I do think there's something about, I don't know, being able to marry up that, you know, what does the future of work look like and what should the apprenticeships be focusing on? Um, I mean, interestingly, uh, 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 Danielle Hamilton, um, who's uh, in charge of uh, kind of customer success and the technology side of things at uh, a vendor called Thrive Learning, who was on one of the panels I chaired at Learning Live, she's setting up a foundation uh, to help girls with digital skills, but it's not about coding. And it's quite interesting talking to her about the definition between it's not, you know, basic stuff like spreadsheets, etc, that they learn at school, but it's not code either. It's things like, you know, graphic design and, you know, elements of ID mm. and things that we do in our industry that fall somewhere between the cracks, because actually there's a need for a lot of those skills, but they don't really get covered. So I think there's something there for me about the future proofing, I suppose, and what it's all very well saying apprenticeships are great. And I think any kind of practical experience is, is, is always good. And especially some kids aren't suited to an academic environment. They'd much rather be doing and learning in a hands-on way. And I think that's great. Um, but I, yeah, I feel like there's, there's something around the uh, array of topics and qualifications, the areas in which you qualify uh, under an apprenticeship. Um, I think they probably do need looking at, and maybe these T levels will will address some of that. Well, yes, good, great segue, thank you. Um, so the survey also found few people were aware of T levels, the equivalent to A levels. Well, that's kind of. Um, which will be launched in England next year. So let's talk about T-Levels. Uh, they're coming in in September 2020. Uh, they'll follow GCSEs and be equivalent to three A-Levels. These sound really good, uh, I think. And um, it's something which I've been campaigning for in no way at all, apart from ranting at people, uh, that I think should definitely be a part of all degrees or all sort of higher to further education, which is uh, on-the-job experience. So T-Levels will offer students a mixture of classroom learning and on-the-job, uh, at least 315 hours, which equates to 45 days. And uh, you can take them in all sorts of industries, from accounting to craft and design, cultural heritage, health, legal, uh, on-site construction, media, etc., etc. So um, they sound really good, even though most people don't know about them. But they will, I'm sure. I mean, I remember these being talked about when I used to do some work with City and Guilds. I mean, that's that's years ago now. Um, so they it feels like they've been coming for a long time. It does sound like they are addressing, you know, some things that traditional apprenticeships maybe aren't. And that's really encouraging. But as with all these things, you know, the communication around, around it all is probably not very good. Um, and parents 
I don't know. I think they're often the last to know. And, you know, that what are they relying on? Is it the school's responsibility? Is it the parents' responsibility to be looking this stuff up? Is it the government's responsibility to, you know, communicate it better? I don't know. There's probably some accountability on all, on all sides there. But um, anything that offers, you know, a, a variety of ways to learn, is going to be good in my book. I mean, and I did a placement year at university. I did a year in industry. So I'm always going to advocate for that kind of hands-on experience as well. Um, because even though I did a year in retail management, which I have never subsequently done in my career, I learned so much <laughs> in that year. And it doesn't really matter almost what you do. You learn a lot about yourself and your skills. Um, so anything that offers that is is always going to be a plus. Yeah absolutely okay well a short one today uh, what was it a short one what are we clocking in at 17 minutes no just flies by doesn't it yeah. <laughs> time flies when you're having fun absolutely uh, well Kate as always speak to you soon thanks John okay uh, yeah should we talk about TJ Magazine then yeah I mean it's kind of the point of this part of the podcast we might as well John <laughs> uh, and hello Joe as well and hello John this is September's edition of TJ Magazine focusing uh, of course, as it does on evaluation and learning transfer. Um, I waffle on about something in the editor's note. and um, But the first quote that really caught my mind from uh, the magazine is, of course, Donald Taylor's piece. It's not a negative quote as such, but it's uh, certainly one to make us kind of prick up our ears and think about what we're doing when he says, our minds are wonderful, but in trying to convey ideas, we must always remember that our worldviews are different, shaped by our different experiences. We never know how different those worldviews are. And so to ensure our metaphors land, we must first test them. Will they work with our audience? You might be surprised at how often they don't. I really like this column from Don. He's being very open and honest where basically a, a tiny little thing in a training session he was running didn't work. And when we're trainers and facilitators, we get hundreds of these every week, month and year. Um, and, and it's part of the fun and the nuance of being a really good facilitator is A, noticing when it doesn't work and rescuing it like Don did and making it into a learning point as he discusses in his column, but also about trying to get it right in the first place and being aware of those differences. It's part of my job I love. It's really creative. I also was, well, we, to be honest with you, I could we could talk about Don's column for a long time. We could also talk about yours for a long, long time. And it was something which I noticed on I noticed the conversation happening on Twitter when it uh, as it happened uh, and I'm really glad you flagged it up uh, and it's something that I think is very important not just for L&D people I think for all business people and all other people and, and how they use social media so tell us a little bit about what you wrote about this month Joe. Well it was a conversation started by Suk Pabial on Twitter as you say and what he posted on Twitter was in the L&D space, I notice a number of consultants who don't share personal stuff. You just get no sense of who they are as a person or what their value set is. They say the right things for professional purposes, but rarely do you see them back it up in their interactions. And as you say, it started a whole conversation. And I, I just thought it was really interesting. We often talk about authenticity. And the opposite of that is oversharing. And I just think it all comes down to what a phrase that I'm using and applying in this situation called digital body language. 
digital body language. Uh, what what constitutes good digital body language then, Joe? Mm, interesting. It was originally coined by Steve Woods back in 2009, and it really related to marketing and looking at deep, deep detailed analytics for for marketing reasons. I think we can apply it to our behavior online, so that's social media. Um, Obviously, I apply it to things like virtual classrooms and webinars because you can't see people and therefore you have to read their body language through activities and the chat window, hence the digital. And I think it applies really well to email, social media, forums, LinkedIn, all of these things, because we can't hear tone of voice. We can't see people's body language. We have to rely on the cues in their words in things like, do they put a smiley face? Uh, How often do they respond? How quickly? Are they always the one that you go, oh, there they go again? Or are they the person where you go, oh, they're they're coming in. They're going to say something really cool. And that's part of digital body language. You could also call it persona, branding, all sorts of different elements come together for it. What I think is interesting here, and, it, and this happens quite a lot, is you say this this turn of phrase was coined in uh, 2009, so 10 years ago, but it's only really come to the fore in the last um, few years. But I guess that kind of fits with the amount of time we spend on social media and how that's kind of ramped up and, and how that uh, that whole ecosystem uh, is kind of diversified and the different ways you can engage with people. Uh, I, I'm still not sure about what I think of in you know what I personally think about this this idea of how much you should share and I certainly I run say three different Instagram accounts a handful of Twitter accounts uh, you know various different Facebook pages and I think you I do find myself putting across a different persona for each of them which is based on the audience uh, that they have I'm using many marketing terms here I do apologize but um I think it it isn't ingenuous uh, disingenuous to do that I think it is appropriate to speak the language of who you're talking to and the followers you have and all that sort of thing the frisson I think is where people treat these kind of audiences differently or people within the same group of uh followers say and in the 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 L&D community on Twitter for example treat their accounts and their profiles in different ways and so what someone might deem not to be oversharing would become oversharing to someone else and I think this is where the the awkwardness comes about and where you think people might say sharing a picture or sharing some personal Mm. information might be acceptable and authentic other people might think oh well that's not professional and I think professional should be used in quote marks there you know Yeah, I think you've got a really good point. And for individuals within industries or subsectors of industries, it will be really different. I saw somebody share something the other day and it was one of those things of, gosh, I wouldn't have shared that. But actually, I think it's really brave and open and honest that that person did. So at what point is that my response? And is somebody else going, no, they absolutely should have shared it. And is somebody else going, no, they shouldn't. And and this is but this is kind of human nature and human conversation and personality anyway. And I think if we bring it back very slightly, I think what we can look at here is rather than just always spouting a really bland magnolia corporate line, can we just inject some personality? And for example, with the TJ Twitter account, you quite often use animated GIFs or you'll use an A-team quote or we had a webinar where 
um, we had, you know, the speakers were, were changing for a number of reasons. And I remember you put something like our webinar speaker lineups had more changes than the Pussycat Dolls or whoever it was. Um, you know, this is what's going on next week. And it's that kind of thing where you can bring in personality without being um, without oversharing, I think. Yeah, um, I remember that. I think it was the Sugar Babes, actually. But uh, ah, well, it, show, it shows my lack of knowledge about what '90s girl bands or whoever they are. I can't. How dare you? I can't believe it. Um, <laughs> but yes, I, I, I take your point, and uh, I think there's there's always going to be kind of uh, like you said earlier on about the the actual body language and even just the language you use about uh, the the way that social media kind of strips away nuance and sarcasm and all those different things. Uh, mm-hmm. It is important to understand what did he, digital body language is. Um, so, yeah, brilliant uh, piece as always. On the facing page, uh, Liggy Webb talks about great conversations, being able to communicate and the importance of that. Uh, plan and prepare. Choose your timing. Ask the right questions. Be present and be interested and interesting. Uh, then on the... Other, sorry, moving on from that, we have the TJ Awards interviews. They are happening right now. Between the 10th of September and the 20th of September, we are going to be interviewing all our shortlisted candidates for the 13 categories. Uh, it's a lot of work. It really is. But we've got some great sponsors, the Charity Learning Consortium, CIPD, SkillPill, TMSDI. Um, and between the sponsors, between the judges, between the uh, admin staff, and of course, everybody presenting and sharing those stories, it's going to be a real celebration of success, let alone when we come to the gala dinner, John. Yeah, absolutely. Can't wait for that. Um, it's a brilliant event taking place on uh, Tuesday, 3rd of December at uh, the Pavilion at the Tower of London, which is a very glitzy venue indeed. Um, but as you say, there's so much more than that. It's a whole programme of activity. It's an incredible amount of work. Our events team are doing an amazing job of kind of pulling it all together, as well as uh, Debbie kind of steering the ship on this one. So uh, yeah, it's all in the, uh, very much in the swing of things. Uh, our spotlight interview is Andrew Perkins, who's the Global Director for Kaplan Leadership and Professional Development. And also we've got another piece about data as well, capturing learner data, which is quite interesting. It talks about XAPI and also SCORM. Do you want to give us a bit of an overview of those, Jay? Uh, no. <laughs> <laughs> um, they're techie things that we should all know about. XAPI, um, actually Megan Torrance is doing an open uh, free group on learning XPI, XAPI, which I'm on at the moment. Um, and it's to do with gathering data and getting it in different places. That's the worst description in the world. And John, what's SCORM? SCORM, oh, of course, Joe. you're talking about the shareable content object reference model. Come on. <laughs> he says reading from his own magazine <laughs> what, do, what do you mean well these are the kinds of things that um these are the subjects which i have sort of a tangential knowledge of but not really a deep knowledge of i'd say as uh mm. i'm not a learning designer and uh i kind of comment on various parts of lnd this is where i can step away and say yeah you take care of that <laughs> Well, I shall move swiftly on to um, a really good article, actually, from Dr. Ina Weinbauer-Heidel about, uh, she says, certificates send the wrong signals, which is all about learning transfer. And I really like that in the opening of the article, she says about how common L&D things send the wrong signals, such as we say that participation in the training is mandatory, but participation in follow-up isn't. And that's really a bums on seats issue. And if we give people a certificate, it's like, yay, you were here. 
but actually we don't necessarily care that much about have you implemented anything in the workplace afterwards. There's a whole article here on how you can do things differently, questions to ask um, about transfer expectation in the organisation and so on. Really good. It's a controversial headline, but it backs it up with deep research. So it's not just kind of clickbait for the sake of it. It's a really well thought out article from an expert in the field. Um, My favourite line from uh, the piece was definitely the L&D professionals often have catastrophic blind spots, which I thought was maybe, you know, it'll, it'll get people to sit up and listen for sure. But we do. We we really, really do. Um, and, and that's as an industry in a whole and as individual teams and people, we do have those blind spots. Everybody has those blind spots in their personal life, in their working life, in their organisations, their industry. Um, and, and it's part of normality. If you're driving a car, you have a blind spot because there's a part your mirror can't show you. There's your um, part of the roof support is in the way. It's just normal. But the point is to know you've got the blind spot and be able to lean forward or back and look around it. And, And if you don't know it, then you can't do anything about it. So I really like that point that she makes. Yeah, I think it is important to note that it isn't just L&D that, like you say, that all industries uh, have that as well. Elsewhere in the magazine, uh, we have a great piece from Laura Francis of River Software about mentoring. Uh, and she divides mentoring into three different types, information-based mentoring, skill-based mentoring, and advocacy-based mentoring. I never knew it was such a deep and varied field, to be honest with you. Yeah, and the advocacy-based mentoring is where mentees focus on highly complex interpersonal behaviours. That's a really interesting area, isn't it? It is. I mean, I think it's something which uh, it gets lumped in with coaching quite a lot, but it is significantly different. Um, mm. And, and you know, from someone who's vice president of a, a company that deals with mentoring software, mentoring software, very interesting. There's clearly a lot more than uh, meets the eye when it comes to men, uh, mentoring itself. Uh, another piece we published in the on, online as well as in the magazine is a piece from David Pincott from Movement to Work. And it's about, it's called Real World Experience and it's about youth unemployment. So NEETS, uh, this is a term I heard, I used to hear quite a lot, and then it kind of faded out of usage. But the problem that it describes certainly hasn't faded out of usage, which is uh, describing a a NEET is uh, young people or NEETs are young people who are not in education, employment or training. And this piece is all about high quality work placements and their importance to getting people back into the workforce. Key quote I'm pulling out here is, many job opportunities are there with thousands of vacancies and employers investing to support young people into employment through apprenticeships and work placements. But this can only make a difference if young people believe they can access these opportunities, as well as relevant mentoring, there we go again, and role models to show them the pathway to jobs. Uh, So I think that's important. It's about knowing that the opportunities are there rather than the opportunities just being there for people to find them. Really interesting point. And there was a tweet this morning from Nick Shackleton-Jones, which posted up a picture from a game called Cards Against Humanity. A lot of people will know it. It's a, let's say, an adult game. Uh, But basically, you have a a phrase with a blank, and then you've got a number of cards, some of which are rude, uh, where you can use that card to fill in the blank to make a sentence, and you have to make people laugh. Um, And the the whole sentence that came up in the picture that he shared was it's a pity that kids these days are all getting involved with having big dreams but no realistic way to achieve them and I think that sums up this conversation really well Mm. 
Cards Against Humanity, that's a funny game. <laughs> I do have like about 80% of the extensions of that game, which is uh, tells you a lot about my sense of humour. <laughs> yeah, so do read that piece uh, from David Pincott. Uh, a couple of good case studies in there as well about the importance of uh, good work placements. And of course, rounding off the magazine is Henry Stewart from uh, the... Uh, Chief Happiness Officer at Happy, who talks about getting rid of performance appraisals. And that, to be honest, is music to my ears. I've, uh, I'm not a fan of them. Yeah, I think it's just probably you've had lots of bad ones, John. But I really like that. What, <laughs> I really like that what um, uh, Henry shares is that he says that he's seen too much capability work that doesn't impact capability and shared this on, I think it was LinkedIn. And other people kind of were with him and saying, I'm not sure it's the best way to go. And instead should be really focusing on people's strengths and how to apply them. And I really like that approach about strengths. Okay, so that was this month's magazine. Hi, TJs. It's John here. I recently talked to Rachel Orchard. Uh, She is founder of My Pocket Coach that uh, coaches hundreds of individuals from public and private sector organisations, including team coaching programmes. We talked about coaching, of course. Uh, We talked about role models and we talked about the endurance side of lifelong learning. I recently appeared on her podcast too. And so we kind of addressed some of the things I talked about there and whether she had any input on uh, what I was saying on that too. So sit back, put your headphones on. And do enjoy. So the first question I've got for you is um, coaching and learning are sometimes confused with training needs in, in the, the workplace. Can you tell me how you feel all these things kind of fit together and why they're different? Um, yeah. Hi, John. And thanks. You know, um, it's lovely to be on um, TJ's um, podcast. Um, how they all fit together. Well, I, I think it's just a case of not necessarily how they all fit together, but just um, perceptions that people might have of and maybe getting mixed up with what coaching and learning is and, and, and then what training is. Because traditionally, uh, I, I know the likes of um, someone like the lovely David James, who you know used to work for Disney and, and run their learning and development. He's had lots of years uh, and of talking about this, and he's very passionate about this, about the idea that as soon as there's a problem or a challenge or maybe it's something to do with communication issues within team or whatever, um, immediately the line manager or or someone higher up or whatever slaps a a kind of plaster on it and just says right let's let's have a training course or something and 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 this was what um, occurred to me when I first started coaching because I I was never an internal coach or or trained as an internal coach I was always um, externally learning as a coach and then approaching organizations and and um, coaching one-to-one with company leaders and um yeah, so when I it, it, this also occurred to me as well as uh, to David it, is this idea of well, there's a lot of being people being put in like sheep dipping as as David says it in and um, other people have said this whole sheep sheep dis- dipping um, idea of just putting them through a training course because there's a problem or a challenge and and when I as I say sort of seven years ago looked at it when I started. Um, training and coaching the people that I came across as some of the people I saw on courses or trained whatever were being you know some of them weren't very happy to be uh, you know on the training course or I heard other coaches and training associates who I work with and so sometimes you know you walk you walk into a room to deliver a piece of training 
and you know maybe 50% are switched on 50% don't want to be there or whatever it might be or you know some people don't understand why they're there or you know where it links to what the training need is so I, I think that's why kind of I, I pointed that out as something I wanted to talk about um John was just there was a mismatch and it was not only a mismatch with what company companies thought they needed and what the training or coaching provider was providing but it was also um people not understanding the difference between coaching and training because there is a massive difference and and we can get into that if you want to you know obviously if you if you're being coached it's it's more on a one-to-one basis and it's more for a specific um uh, need of the individual person whereas training generally tends to be with more people um in a room on an online course a MOOC or a e-learning etc um and yeah, it tends to be sort of wider ranging and for more people um, and coaching is more specific and it has a specific outcome for each person. Well, yeah, I mean, let's get into that. I, I, I think we've been hearing uh, a lot more about this recently, the idea of the separation of training and learning. And we can also put coaching in there as well. And when you when you hear these days, if you uh, attend, say, a TJ Talks webinar, other webinars are available, of course, um, you you know you, you you'll have you'll hear people in L&D ostensibly part of an L&D department talking about the fact that it might not be training that uh, is going to solve this problem it might not even be it could just be a, a reorganization of the company uh, just you know off the bat but um the point being that uh training is one way to improve performance uh coaching is another and these are the sorts of things now that people in L&D have to navigate don't you think yeah well me personally um i think there are kind of two answers to this there's either the coaching route which is a very specific route for an executive or a leader within a company that has a specific need that um, needs answering via a coach or mentor that i'm working with a company at the moment and very successfully with there was a training need they, they did a 360 report there was a gap um, gap analysis and 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 we very successfully worked together myself and the senior manager and that's where coaching really works well with the guards training courses I I think I'm a big advocate of, of, of someone similar you know to, to David James's experience of, of, of being a bit reticent about training courses and about the, the amount of waste of revenue that's put into them because they're so generalised, the people going into them don't necessarily connect to them. And I think what these companies are now doing, um, and uh, it's similar to, to, to David and other companies he's interviewed on his podcast, is they're looking at facilitating um, the gaps but doing it while you're in the company so not taking you out externally for a training course but it's almost kind of like on the job training but it's it, it's more um, facilitating where the gap is where the knowledge uh, gap is and then connecting you with the the kind of the subject matter owner of of, of that specific skill um, and, and again they're using a lot of online chat um, social media and knowledge sharing and different uh, platforms to so people can talk together the ones who want to learn can learn and um, 
and then they connect them. So you almost, you, as a learning and development provider, you're almost becoming like a Scylla Black kind of date person where you're matching people up. You literally, you don't take them out of work. You don't say, okay, you need some coaching or something wrong with you. You kind of go, okay, there's a skills gap or whatever. But if it's something a bit more like mindset or confidence or resilience, then yeah, there's probably a coaching um, element needed where we you know we can match you with a specific coach and, and and do that so for me there's just those two areas I think that's all that's needed uh, well you know there's a wider broader perspective in this whole facilitation that um, the likes of uh, David Jones and pe- people like that in learning and development do um, which involves you know online learning and MOOCs and, and uh, blended learning etc etc but I think this whole idea which is I think is perfect is not taking people out for a bog standard training course, keeping them in work, keeping them on the job, and the ones who who want to put their hands up and go, okay, there's a there's a gap here, then facilitating um, those conversations with people who can pass on the skills, pass on the learning. Yeah, I also think um, it's about influence as well, uh, and sometimes these the success of these things is by finding people which are the most uh, engaged with what you're doing and not officially but sort of unofficially make them kind of champions of what L&D is trying to achieve and 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 uh they'll be the ones who who will uh spread the influence of what L&D is trying to do perhaps in the organization yeah I mean totally I mean I haven't got experience of that because as I haven't worked in you know internally and been sort of uh, a permanent resident in in the learning and development department but yeah for sure, if companies are doing that, then it's a great idea because I'm a big advocate of role models, role modelling um, in learning and development. I mean, it's it's the best way to motivate someone, to engage people, and to also people to help people identify where the gaps might be because they're role modelling someone and they're able to find out what they're doing that could be different to what you're doing. So yeah, I I, I love that idea. Let's talk a bit about lifelong learning. When I went on your podcast, uh, it was something I said that I was passionate about. I've uh, obviously I still am, um, but I've sort of read a bit more about the concept and various other people's opinions of it, and uh, that it's kind of a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I, I'm sort of specifically talking about a blog post from Donald Clark where he said that <laughs> lifelong learning was kind of overblown or uh, isn't quite what people thought it would be and I think maybe he focused a little bit too much on the term rather than the actual um, uh, rationale behind it but um, your so so your angle from it here is that lifelong learning is not about success or progress it's more about endurance Uh, give us a bit of insight into the thinking there yeah okay <laughs> how long you got um basically you know as I said so six seven years ago I was looking at the effectiveness of coaching the effectiveness of training courses as a coach myself I wanted to know how I was delivering and th- this concept that I was so committed to of lifelong learning of being able to um deliver change to organizations but also know that it was going to continue this this whole idea of um you know getting their bang for their buck and the roi so i was real keen advocate of you know everyone's got to be 
motivated to, to to be like kind of lifelong learners and then obviously six seven years later you you become a bit jaded around the edges and sort of think well it doesn't exactly work like that you know you take a horse to water um but even further on to, to that because obviously there will be people who are growth mindset and fixed mindset um and there'll be loads of other politics and stuff going on in companies when when you you know are brought in um but for me, when I when I created a tool set to, to kind of support the idea of lifelong learning and behavioural change and how do you get that consistently to continue um, and inspire people enough to want to grow and develop and be the best version of themselves. Um, even in the past couple of years of me using that tool set and using it with students and coaches and, you know, um, internal um, corporate coaches who totally get you know what I'm trying to do and, and how it helps them achieve what they're trying to do and um, you know engage their workforce it, it's the, the more you use the tool set and you more you use all of these different coaching concepts and ways to motivate and communicate with people you do start to see that along the way it's a bit more complicated about that than that and and actually um, you might have small amounts of success, you know, the people personally that you're coaching or yourself or, or the organisation. Um, but sometimes as humans, it's like we have happiness and it's in a fleeting moment of happiness. And then when you've got that piece of success, it's then about what's the next, what's the next success and the next success. And, and it all, all just becomes, as I say, not, not so motivational. Um, so that's why I said that thing about sometimes it's not about success because that's not enough to keep you going. Um, and, 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 and then even the progress part of it, even when you're, you know, a very senior leader within an organization and you're still seeing progress, there's still some things that become quite jaded um, just about the process of being human, of working with people. Um, and that's why I said that, that it actually goes from success to progress to actually just being more about endurance because life is life. And, and you know, when you, when you work, as we all do um, in the business of people, you, you actually find out um, along the way, you know, when, when you've got your sort of... Um, your, your head on that, that I see of the world as perfect and you, you know you can take a tool set and then transform the world that it's actually it's it's being able to endure teach people to endure along the ways of, of whatever it is they're trying to achieve so yeah and then give them a tool set that helps support them do that um it, it was Bill Gates who said you know if you can give people the tool set so then they're then enabled to go and create their own results, that's much better than trying to give them the solution. Um, so, yeah, don't, don't try to tell people what to do. Give, give them something to support them and um, support their endurance. So, yeah, that was what was behind that. So what do you think are the tool sets? What do you think are the uh, a sort of um it's successful strategies for doing that to give people the ability to become lifelong learners at different stages or is that too big a question yeah i i think that's probably too big a question but also i was listening to something um the other day by toby newman who's um a learning development manager for here technologies and um he was saying sort of a similar thing that um they're an international worldwide company and they put out like a job spec 
just to see what vendors would come back with. Um, just I think it was something about saying about they're looking for more engagement or something. And they, he said he ha- we had tons and tons, hundreds and hundreds of people, vendors, coaches, training companies come back um, with, right, you need to do this. You need to do this e-learning system. We can suggest this tool set. Blah, blah, blah. And he said not really, he said there was probably only one or two who actually came back to us and said, well, what's your engagement problem? Like, tell us a bit more or what do you think would work or what blended approach, you know? So I think sometimes there is a knee jerk reaction in the industry just to go, right, buy my tool set, you know, or, or, or buy this or whatever, rather than us look internally to go and um, uh, Christina, my Christina Gads, um, you know, she said this as well, you know, when she goes into a company, she, she'll sort of first sit down with them and say, why do you think you need me? What's what's going on? So, yeah, I think that's possibly a bit of a broad ranging, ranging um, question for me to answer, John. But it's, it starts with asking why, <laughs> as Simon Sinek would say, um, of, you know, um, what's what's their why and what's going on before you, you know, relate a tool set to it. So, yeah. But my, I mean, my specific tool set is it's there to support um coaching executives internal coaches um with their mindset and um it's basically helping them to to find the information themselves not necessarily training them or providing a piece of training um it 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 really is about looking to increase the quality of their mindset and giving them um some space during the day some behavioral space so that they can do the things that they need to do so yeah so the last question, it's more of a statement, but I'd, uh, I'm i going to try to get some explanation on it because it's uh, interesting. It's interestingly put together. Um, so you, rec- you say training is more about skills and measures, whereas coaching could be less tangible and more about increasing resilience mm-hmm. or your confidence, which will have the indirect impact of increasing measures and skills. So how, how do you see those two things working? Um, yeah, so, well, I think just because training is more about skill sets as such. So at the beginning of, of um, a piece of training, you know exactly what it is that, that is the, the, the gap um, that you're looking to fill. And it's more easy to measure that um, and, and to, to, to kind of, you know, set the reviews and the measures and the ROI. And, and, and it's, 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 it's a lot more tangible. Um, whereas... It, as I said, if you've got someone who's brought in as a coach and there's definitely, um, you know, a, a lack of something or um, there's a need within the senior manager who's being coached, but maybe they haven't got the answers themselves because a lot of coaching does begin with either a lack of awareness, not even knowing you've you've got a problem um, or, or not that the other person themselves actually not knowing quite what it is, not being able to put some words to it, um, or maybe not wanting to take responsibility or whatever it might be. But it's it's a lot a lot less tangible, but people know that there's an issue because either, you know, there's some there's some people issues going on, or maybe there's um 
you know, a lack in leadership. I guess that's probably more of a skills thing. But there's definitely some heads being bumped within a department um, or people hitting brick walls or maybe someone's exhausted or stressed or they're not, you know, just not able to fulfill their role as they were previously. But they don't know what the answer is. They don't know where the problem is. So and and that's really a coaching um requirement because uh usually as i say most of the time when i speak start coaching with people you know a lot of the time we don't have a specific thing that we're you know we're measuring until we've had a couple of sessions um so yeah those those tend to be the differences between training and coaching training is when you know what the skills deficit is um and then coaching tends to generally be when you've had a few sessions with people and they've been able to identify what the you know, the, the, the gap is in, in their um, leadership skills, behavioural skills, whatever it might be. Once we work on that, actually as a result of that, which is what I said to you in, in my couple of questions, I thought, um, the, the impact of the increased confidence or the increased resilience or the increased awareness that they then got of, oh, I had no idea, this was a complete blind spot to me, um, it then starts to impact the measures and skills and, and more of their um, their skill sets as a leader. And um, so then that then starts to impact training effectiveness as well, because they're, they're just more aware, they, they can um, notice when these things start to happen um, and start to imp, um, input uh, skills, tool sets that will help them better communicate, lead, create more headspace for them so that they can get done what they need to get done. Um, yeah, so a lot of the time it's it's that lack of awareness. So I've got a couple of questions um, just to round off about coaching. Uh, so obviously there's there's TNA training needs analysis and this, it's sort of variant cousin uh, LNA learning needs analysis. Is there a CNA? Is there a coaching needs analysis? Do you do that kind of thing with people? I mean, I don't specifically because usually when I'm called in is because the organisation has seen the need and. Um, Either I've been recommended, or um, you know, an associate company of mine has has brought me in to 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 kind of do you know service that need. Um, the the only thing um, that that I've seen done is is things like three hundred and sixty reports, um, where uh, obviously you know if it's a from manager, senior manager, and all of the their senior leaders have been surveyed on you know their progress or their effectiveness and then people that their team who um they manage has been surveyed um and then generally we'll have a look at the the chart the pie chart etc and we'll see what were the main areas what were the main themes um and then work specifically on those and then do another 360 report afterwards to see you know the shift and and I know already as I say currently a, a client I'm working with the, the specific two three things that we identified at the beginning um we have already started to get reports back from senior directors in the organization that those specific things have been impacted and have improved um so so that that's what tends to happen um with the but as I say I don't know I mean I'm only one person whether there's um, are you saying is there should there be a coaching needs an analysis or did you were you asking John does one exist is that what you were saying I'm, I'm just curious I guess about how how these things that are decided the how the what if there's a formality to the exploratory conversations that you have or is it kind of a case-by-case thing you know 
Yeah, I think it is a case by case thing. And, and you know, what's interesting is, is, you know, maybe even there are people who are asked to have coaching and maybe it's not the right person who should be having the coaching. Uh, you know, maybe it's even um, the person ab- above them um, who they aren't, you know, who they report into. Um, and, yeah, it, real, it, it really is more of a personal, um, in, you know, it comes from personal indication of um, leaders, people you're working with, and um, then it's, yeah, you, you are literally um, inviting coaches in and tailoring the coaching um, delivery to that person who's indicated there's a coaching need. And it could be from the person themselves who says, I would like coaching, um, which has been a couple of last couple of people I've worked with. Um, or it might come from senior above where they say, right, we want to progress this person, um, which traditionally it's been where it's fast, um, you know, you kind of your talent management are wanting to progress people so they you, they might bring in coaches and mentors to to facilitate that um the, the talent who are being grown within the organization so it, it's a combination of things of, of where the coaching need comes from um but yeah i don't know whether there's a coaching needs analysis type um software out there uh, there could well be that's the thing with andy it's so diverse isn't it there's no sort of one one hat fits all for everybody is there John it is yeah but um so. today I definitely feel like I've got more of an insight into uh coaching and how that kind of fits together <laughs> um so Rachel Good. thanks very much thanks John much appreciated really enjoyed it okay that's it for September next month we're talking motivation and engagement so until then stay curious and we'll see you soon podcast is hosted by john kennard joe cook and kate graham it's produced and edited by me john kennard with additional production by joe cook title music is by the leisure all-stars featuring yolanda the sponsorship music is by audio nautics and is used under a creative commons license tj is a publishing title owned by dodds group plc